All right, guys, thank you for joining us. Um, we're going to try to kill two birds with one stone. Uh, one of the things that we do in this office is we produce a podcast called The Wizard Prosecutor's Guide. And so we're going to be taping this uh, presentation for the IPG as well. And so if you're going to be asking a question, please speak up. But otherwise, uh, please generally be quiet so we can make sure that we get everything properly uh, and I am being joined today on the IPG podcast. You'll occasionally listen to me make reference to IPG because it goes out to uh, folks around the state as well. So I'm joined today by Steve Del Porto and he is definitely more than I can be. Uh, he uh, has presented on this topic on several occasions and I recruited him way back when I was in Alameda. To, uh, to present on this issue. Now, you've each have gotten a handout, and during the course of our presentation, we're not going to be citing the cases. But every principle that we give to you is supported by case law, which is included in the handout. It's a good idea if you do have an opportunity that I know you're completely overwhelmed in information um, during the first two weeks here. But at some point, it's not a bad idea to be familiar with what you can and cannot do in uh, opening and closing argument. I know you've already uh, been trying some cases. But I guarantee you there's things in here which you think are proper to do, which are not actually proper to do. So you do want to become familiar with this. Unlike a lot of other things, this is the only, one of the few things that's completely within your control. If you make a mistake in uh, opening statement or closing argument, you can't like blame anyone else. It just falls on you. So. It's a good idea to be familiar with this. You will see at the very end of the handout, we give lots of law which will help prevent a mistrial from being granted or help prevent a reversal on appeal if you do make a mistake. I'm not going to be talking about how to get you out of the suit. We're going to be focusing on making sure you don't get into the suit in the first place. And one of the ways we do that, and I can, I can help you in this area, is because I've made a lot of the mistakes that we're going to be talking about. Uh, it's good to have someone who is, who's made all the mistakes so that you don't have to make them. You're going to see as you go through, as we talk about this presentation here, you're going to see that you will be saying to yourself, hey, wait a second. Well, I think I did that in a prior trial. And sometimes you're going to say, I think I've done that in every trial I've ever had. <laughs> but be that as it may, that is not evidence that it's appropriate just because you've done it before. Anyway, I'm here as a repentant sinner to talk to you about argument, and at the other end of the spectrum is the man without sin, Steve Del who is going to be doing most of the answer. So, let's get started. Steve. And let me just say, actually, at the outset, that I, too, must confess that I've made some of the arguments that I'm about to decry and denounce, so I'm certainly not without sin here, and I won't be tossing any first stones out, but um, I do think that, that what we're about to share with you is invaluable. Um, 
and it's also a, a guide to how to view the defense argument as well, because they may well do some of the very things that we are going to describe as improper. And so you want to have those tools, not just for yourself, but also to know um, when it's inappropriate by the part, on the part of the defense and when you might want to lodge an objection and you'll have the case law at your fingertips as to why it, it's inappropriate. All right, so Steve, uh, we're going to start off with opening statement. Uh, Steve, why don't you tell us, uh, can opening statement be used for any sort of argumentative purpose? No. Uh, opening statement serves but one purpose in criminal procedure, uh, and that is to give an outline of the case, uh, which the prosecution claims that will, it will prove. Um, however, nothing precludes you from presenting the people's case in a compelling story-like manner. Uh, using colorful or descriptive language that captures the juror's attention um, and attempts to tie the facts and the law together in a comprehensive way. We're not required to describe relevant events in a case in some artificial, clinical, sterile way. Um, and it's even appropriate to use epithets in, in cases where essentially it's reasonably warranted by the evidence and they're not designed to passion or prejudice of the jury. One of the cases cited in the materials, uh, the prosecutor calls the defendant a monster, a predator, uh, talks about his acts as being vicious and cold-blooded, um, and that the jury is about to experience facts that, that are worse than, than any nightmare they can imagine. Um, these are all comments that were deemed fair because they're reasonably warranted by the evidence. Um, and let me say this, that during opening statement, I think it's always a good idea, I certainly do this a lot, is to say the evidence will show. Um, it's sort of how I start out and how I preface some of you know, the things that I'm about to say, the evidence will show. This will often provide you with some measure of protection going forward uh, in a case and, and uh, essentially whenever the defense is making claims that you're, that you're arguing you're simply talking about what you believe the evidence will show. Okay, you saw just earlier, uh, I made a representation about Stephen being without sin, and then he comes up with a contrary version of, of his experiences. That sometimes happens. You sometimes will be saying something that you think is going to be in the evidence in the opening statement, but uh, doesn't turn out to be available. Is it misconduct for a prosecutor to refer to evidence in opening statement that is not later admitted at trial? Yes, it could well be. Uh, we are not to refer to facts that we cannot or will not be able to prove in a case. And if you're not certain about the admissibility of the evidence in the case, you will want to take that up with the trial court and get pre-approval to talk about certain things. There are invariably going to be in cases gray areas, controversial areas, as to you know, what evidence you're going to be able to talk about, and that's part of what motions and limine are about. Um, and so you'll want to make sure that before you comment on anything in opening statement that you have the court's approval to do so. Also bear in mind that sometimes a court will reserve a ruling. It's not unusual where the court will say, well, you know what, I'm going to revisit that later. Um, so. You know, I'm not sure at this juncture whether that evidence is going to be permitted. It's predicated on certain other things happening. In that case, clearly, you don't want to mention an opening statement 
that might be evidence to hear. Um, that would be premature. So you'll want to leave that out. Now, if it turns out that you do mention an opening statement, um, you refer to some fact that is not admitted later, I think it's a good practice uh, to be proactive and ask an instruction from the court that where the jury is admonished that statements of counsel are not evidence. Um, that may well uh, save the day and help mitigate any possible prejudice that might arise from the fact that you deviated in your opening statement from what uh, the evidence actually revealed. It's always a good idea if there is some potential error or some situation where you may have done something wrong to ask for an instruction, uh, having the judge explain to the jury that statements of counsel are not evidence. And since we're just going to be talking about opening statement and closing argument, all our errors are going to be errors of um, misstatements. And that usually can be cured by uh, an instruction. But you need to ask for it. Don't take the position, right, there's, there's nothing wrong here. I don't want an instruction. Get the instruction. Okay, so uh, a lot of times we may have evidence that we want to use in our opening statement. It hasn't actually been introduced formally into evidence yet. Uh, can we uh, talk about uh, physical evidence, objects, that we have not yet introduced into evidence in our opening statement? Can we display them to the jury? Yes, a prosecutor may always use admissible evidence in opening statement, and I would encourage you to do so. The, the purpose of the opening statement, of course, is to prepare the minds of the jury to follow the evidence, and the use of these items, which are admissible, certainly can help aid the jury in understanding what occurred in a particular case. So visual or auditory aids are always going to be appropriate. The 911 tape, for example, or defendant statements to the police or photos, these are things you're going to want to use. Again, with this caveat that if you do think there is some piece of evidence that may be controversial, better you raise it, uh, that issue before the court to make sure that, that you're going to get a green light to present that. But for the most part, um, it will be obvious what, what the admissible evidence is, and you'll want to use that in your opening statement. Okay, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the opening statement, but you should be aware of, because you have even uh, more restrictions on opening statement than you do in closing argument, anything that we're going to be talking about during closing argument that is error is also going to be error if you do it during the opening statement. All right, so let's get to closing argument. Uh, Steve, you know, we have a special role as prosecutors in the system. We're not governed by the same uh, ethics. We're not governed by the same rules that defense counsel or civil attorneys are governed by. Uh, is it okay for us to explain that fact to the jury? No, we cannot. Uh, as we all know, or should know by now, that we are held to a higher standard than that imposed on other attorneys because of the unique function that we perform representing the interests and the sovereign power of the state. We are supposed to be wearing the proverbial white hats. Um, and I would add that the, the prosecutor's closing argument is an especially critical period of the trial since it comes from an official representative of the people. It has to be objectively reasonable. Whatever you do, though, do not um, tell this to the jury. That is, don't share with the jury that indeed this is your special role. It's serious error to tell the jury that you are a representative of law enforcement, you have an obligation to present the facts surrounding the commission of the crime, um, 
in a true manner, and uh, defense counsel does not. You don't want to create that contrast, uh, even though that's, that is a reality. Uh, one uh, big area of uh, potential error in both uh, opening statement and in closing argument is when we vouch. And we're going to talk a little bit about vouching now. Uh, Steve, can a prosecutor express their personal belief in the guilt of the defendant or say that she would not prosecute, for example, if uh, she had any doubt? <coughs> No, it, it is misconduct for us to vouch for the strength of our cases by invoking our personal prestige, our reputations, our depth of experience, uh, or even to um, refer to the prestige or reputation of the office. Uh, and statements by us to the effect that we wouldn't be here, we as a prosecutor wouldn't be going forward in this case unless we believe uh, the defendant was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's also misconduct. That's that's inappropriate. So you don't want to do that. Does that mean change at all, Steve? If a defense counsel is personally attacking our integrity, can we then uh, explain that we wouldn't be going forward unless we believed in the truth of the evidence that we presented? No, it doesn't change the analysis at all. We should take the high road always. So even though we might be subject to a personal scheming attack. By defense counsel, so we're going to have to ignore that um, or, or uh, object to the court itself. But you don't want to get into sort of an eye for an eye with the defense. And, and this is one area where uh, it cuts both ways because it's not an uncommon defense tactic for them to come in and attack the prosecution itself and say, hey, this case wouldn't be brought but for political motives of the prosecutor's office. So in this case, we wouldn't be here, but for the fact that the prosecution has been unreasonable and it's not willing to listen to what we, we have to say. Uh, we can object on the same basis that they can object when we start talking about our subjective, uh, when they, if we were to start talking about our subjective motivations, they could bring up an objection and the converse is true. You want to be able to point out that these rules which say that our personal beliefs are irrelevant work both ways. The, the defense doesn't get to come in and challenge our beliefs. And if uh, the judge says, yeah, no, your subjective intent is, is an issue, well, then you say, hey, then we can come up there and explain why all the reasons we personally do believe. Now, you want to throw that out there as a reason for not allowing the defense to say uh, and, and attack our it's just something that comes both ways. Now, uh, Steve, it's not unusual in argument for us to talk about the evidence in a way that, uh, for example, we know X, Y, and Z. So we know that the defendant did such and such. We know that uh, it was important for the, uh, the defendant to have uh, you know, obtained this uh, piece of property. Is it okay for us to to use that form of, of discussion? It is, uh, provided that the we obviously includes the jury and the comment refers to the evidence presented in the case. There, there are many occasions where, you know, in closing argument, I may start by suggesting we know now, ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> based on the evidence, that this occurred or that occurred. 
And so as long as you're referring to the evidence and that we is, is, is including the jury, that, that's fine. Um, I would say that the Ninth Circuit has articulated some concern with, with the use of we know, where there's some ambiguity as to whether it's referring to, to matters that are outside the record. But, um, and certainly in the abstract that could happen, but as long as the we know is based on the evidence itself and not your personal belief or refers to something that the jury never heard, it'll be fine. I know sometimes a prosecutor will not expressly state a personal belief in evidence or uh, a witness, but does so indirectly. Uh, is sort of an indirect reference to your personal belief all right? No, the fact that it is an indirect or subtle personal belief does not change the fact that it is misconduct. Uh, for example, uh, in one case in reference to the testimony of a child witness, the prosecutor had stated, I don't know about you, but I'm an old war horse. I've been through a lot of these, and that choked me up when I saw that testimony. And in that case, the California Supreme Court characterized the statement as misconduct uh, because it reflected the prosecutor's personal beliefs, uh, indirectly conveyed to the jury that the prosecutor believed that witness. Similarly, in a, in a case where the defendant was charged with shooting and killing a, a deputy sheriff, one of the central issues in that case was whether or not the deputy had fired on the defendant, whether the defendant was acting in self-defense. And the defense sort of made that argument, uh, suggesting that his client uh, was part of a, a criminal street gang. They acknowledged that, that, that there was a rival gang out there, the Vikings, that were essentially made up of police officers and that the, the victim in the case was, was a member of the Vikings and, and acted uh, in a hostile, threatening manner. And during um, this case, during closing argument, the prosecutor actually took a pin out and put it on his lapel uh, that represented the Vikings, the name of this, this uh, group of police officers. And he had indicated while uh, he was arguing that perhaps he wasn't worthy to wear this this symbol, but he had, he had obtained permission from this elite um, unit uh, known as the Vikings, and that he was going to be a Viking, you know, essentially vouching uh, for, for this law enforcement agency. And the California Supreme Court had serious problems with that. Uh, they noted that the prosecutor placed his own prestige and the prestige of the office behind the Vikings, and then in doing so, he improperly interjected himself into this case by, by presenting his personal view of the credibility of, of the Vikings. Um, he struck then at the heart of the defense in this case by vouching for the legitimacy of the police department. And while he could have made that argument without uh, going to those links, um, that certainly was inappropriate. He sort of presenting it, interjecting his personal belief by symbolism. Yeah, and that's one of the keys to presentation is we can almost always do what we need to do and convey the ideas that we want to convey and even convey our personal beliefs in a way that is proper without running afoul of these rules and, and most of the time it's actually a more effective advocacy if we avoid these types of arguments that are going to run afoul of the ethics rules. So uh, let's say Steve 
I know I can't say I personally believe that the defendant is guilty, but is it okay for me to say, hey, I personally believe that the evidence proves the defendant is guilty? Technically, yes, uh, provided that belief is strictly based on the evidence presented in the case. Uh, the prosecutor has the right to fully state his or her views as to what the evidence is going to show um, and whatever conclusions that he may deem proper. The case that said this is okay, um, as long as that personal belief is based on the evidence. Nonetheless, the better practice, I believe, is always to leave your personal beliefs out of it. As Jeff just alluded to, it's often, it weakens your position um, to sort of say, I believe, or my view is. Um, instead, you want to convey that essentially any reasonable person would be, would be overwhelmed by the evidence in this case. To say something like, the evidence has demonstrated beyond any doubt, reasonable or otherwise. Um, that's the way sort of to present your argument. And it should be obvious from, from the way in which you present your argument, uh, the presenting it in a compelling and convincing way with you know, vigor and passion, that's going to make it obvious what you believe anyway. And to sort of say, to interject, I think this or I think that, it, it really doesn't matter what you think. What you're trying to convey to the jury is the evidence in this case proves uh, overwhelmingly that the defendant is guilty. Is guilty. And be aware that the Ninth Circuit uh, takes a hard line when it appears that the prosecutor is conveying his personal opinion in a case. Uh, they proclaimed in, in one opinion that a prosecutor has no business telling the jury his individual impressions of the evidence. So I would stay away from that, um, leave out I's or me's. Um, it's not about you, and it's, you're going to give a much more effective presentation in any event. Another uh, potential kind of vouching is not saying, yeah, I believe uh, the evidence proves beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, but it involves the uh, expression of a personal belief in the credibility of a witness. Uh, is that type of expression proper statement? It is. Uh, uh, prosecutors pro prohibited from vouching for the credibility of witnesses or otherwise attempting to sort of bolster their veracity by suggesting the district attorney has taken steps to assure the veracity of the witness or the truthfulness of the witness uh, in a case. Uh, one court found improper vouching occurred where the prosecutor had referred to the use of court-appointed experts <coughs> that he had used when he was a defense attorney and how you know, he openly expressed his admiration and respect for these witnesses. That was a form of vouching for the witnesses and it's misconduct that's inappropriate. Uh, the next question I'm going to ask uh, would be, would have been answered completely differently uh, 10 years ago. Uh, Steve, can a prosecutor argue an officer would not risk his or her job by lying in court? As a general rule, no. That assumes facts that are not based on common knowledge and is considered a form of vouching. In one case, for example, that's off-sided, there were 12 officers that were, were part of a, a drug sting that resulted in the arrest of the defendant for a hand-to-hand um, sale, a small amount of cocaine in that case. And the defense had challenged the credibility of 
police officers that testified. There were only a couple of the 12 officers that actually testified in this case. And at one point, the prosecutor in an argument <coughs> responded by saying that he honestly believed that 12 officers that went to the scene all got together and conspired to make this up and to come forward and that they're going to risk their careers and their livelihood for a small amount of cocaine, their pensions, their house notes, the children's tuition. Do you really think 12 officers are going to do that? And, and it's a totally reasonable argument in, in the abstract, right? Go ahead. Yes, but on appeal, uh, the defense claimed that the prosecutor had impermissibly vouched for the prosecution witnesses and argued matters, a number of matters that were not in evidence. Um, that is, that all 12 unidentified, uh, mostly non-testifying officers would testify to the same factual versions, that they all had subjected their uh, houses, their house notes, uh, uh, put them in jeopardy, that, the, that they weren't going to be able to pay for their children in private schools anymore. That was the clear import of what the prosecutor was saying. And, and the reviewing court concluded that by implying that all 12 officers would testify to the same facts, essentially was, was a leap and uh, violated the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to confront cross-examine the witnesses. And ultimately that the officer's false, misleading, or even mistaken testimony, they're matters that are outside the record. Um, they involve procedural rights that are beyond common knowledge. So. Um, that's something you want to really be careful about, you know, how you're, how you're going to sort of present this kind of evidence in closing. Let me say, though, on rebuttal, it may be a different story. In fact, there's a case from, from our own county, from Santa Clara County, where the court upheld a prosecutor's argument that officers would have no reason to lie. And in that case, uh, the prosecutor argued in rebuttal, in case you missed it, maybe it was a little too subtle, not only did the defense attorney just accuse those officers of lying, but he also suggested they committed perjury when they were on the stand and they raised their right hand and swore to tell the truth. Uh, and why would the detectives put their careers on the line for this case? And in that case, the court that reviewed uh, the record found that the response to defense arguments did not amount to the prosecutor's personal assurance that these officers were telling the truth, or that, that you were, the prosecutor was, in effect, putting the, the reputation of harassment of the office behind the officer's testimony. The court distinguished those cases that I referred to earlier on the grounds that the prosecutor was merely rebutting the defense charge that these officers had lied or committed perjury. So that, that can be a very different sort of thing when you make, when you make that argument. So what you take away from all of this when it comes to commenting on uh, officers' credibility? I would suggest that there are several things that you should consider. First, uh, if you're going to make an argument that, that an officer would not have risked his career for the case, do it in rebuttal when you're responding to the defense suggestion that the officer lied in this case. I think it's more effective to do it there in any event, rather than in the opening of your close. Because Hopefully the jury will assume or it will have come across as though the officers were telling the truth in any event. But if they attack the officer's credibility, that's when I would address it, is in rebuttal. Um, second, if you're, um, if you're not arguing facts outside the record, 
Well, you're not, you're not going to be arguing facts outside the record if you've asked the officer or it's come up, come up whether there would be consequences if he, if he lied or committed perjury. So that might be a question you want to ask the officer when they're on the stand. Would there be consequences if you lied about this or if you're committing perjury here in court? And third, uh, both California and the Ninth Circuit courses, cases say that it is perfectly proper to argue and rebuttal that an officer had no reason to lie, no motive to lie. And here's the difference. Um, as the courts look at it, saying your officer has no motive to lie or no reason to lie, that's not referring to some something outside of the record. Uh, that's fair comment on the evidence. Um, prosecutors simply saying to the jury, in effect, there's nothing in the evidence that's a, that points to motives or bias on the part of the officers in a case. So you can't make that argument. Another argument that uh, previously made quite often by uh, prosecutors is uh, the argument that in order to believe the defense, you would have to believe that the police officer witness was committing perjury. Uh, Steve, is that an okay argument? Perhaps, but, but I would avoid making that argument. There's conflicting authority. California says it's okay. Uh, the Ninth Circuit has has problems with it. And I just think it's better to highlight the fact that the officers had no reason to lie in the case. But can a prosecutor ever reference facts that uh, have not been presented to the jury? No, and that, that should be obvious to, to all of us. It's, it would be misconduct for the prosecutor to refer facts that are not evidence. It's not permitted to suggest to the jury there's evidence of which you're personally aware, but you can't share with the jury. You know, to infer that in any way uh, is improper, um, just as it would be for the defense to suggest there may be some other evidence out there that they were precluded from bringing in um, that really establishes that their client is innocent. So you can't do that. Um, and the courts will treat that as vouching when you're essentially articulating your, your personal belief in the guilt of the defendant as an indirect form, you know, of attempting to get facts before the jury. And the theory in the end goes that by vouching for the credibility of the witness or the truth of the defendant's um, guilt, the prosecutor's implying is he, he's aware of some additional evidence, you know, sort of wink, wink, ladies and gentlemen, there's more here that I just can't share with you. You can't do that. And one of the things I do in, in prepping for the DIGGs uh, is go through all, as many cases as I possibly can in preparation for, for putting it together. And you get to go back and look at some of these cases from you know, 60, 70 years ago, and it can be uh, pretty wild, some of the things that uh, prosecutors were doing. There's one case where uh, the prosecutor waited until closing argument to introduce a bullet, like a, that, that was crucial to the case, and they just pulled it out there, aha, here's the bullet that we were talking about. Yeah, as tempting as those things might be, you don't, you don't get to do that. Uh, is there some kind of way for prosecutors to talk about their own personal experience? Not like necessarily that has anything to do with the evidence of the case, but just their, their own personal experience or things that have, have happened to them personally in the past? The short answer is no. It's not appropriate to do that. Again, that's something that you know, would be nice to sort of you know, 
interject some folk wisdom in a case and use maybe a story from your own life, but one, it's a, it's a form of ingratiating yourself with the jury that, that's not appropriate. And it's also, you're referring to evidence that's not in the record. You know, I made reference earlier to the prosecutor who called himself an old war horse. Um, it's, you know, it's sort of, I've been around, I've seen it all. You gotta believe me. That's, you have to refrain from it. I have found many times in cases, defense attorneys will do that. And, uh, and if I know that they're inclined to do that, that's something I might even bring up in a motion in limine. Um, you know, it's always sort of good to know, uh, to learn as much as you can about, you know, an argument that a defense attorney might make time and time again. And again, just because he does it all the time doesn't mean it's appropriate. So you'll want to sort of do your homework if you can't because that can be um, inappropriate and, and devastating in the case of, you know, if that defense attorney is sort of sharing some personal story. Um, you're, you're not to do that. I want to highlight a couple of cases where, you know, it was a little bit over the top, but, but this occurred in, in People versus Monterosso from your materials. There the prosecutor referred to special knowledge on several occasions. Uh, first, he described the protections that are afforded to criminal defendants uh, who plead guilty uh, in, the, in the criminal justice system in an attempt to rebut one of the witnesses who testified for the defense that she didn't understand uh, the consequences when she pled guilty. So the prosecutor made reference to what these protections are. Second, the prosecutor in this case described procedures for assigning inmates um, in an apparent effort to challenge the defense attorney's expert who talked about prison practices. Sort of prosecutor was saying, no, that's not how it works. Here's how it actually works, ladies and gentlemen. And third, the prosecutor described the duty of school officials to report child abuse. And this was an, an effort to discredit the defendant in this case who claimed that he had been <coughs> abused by both his uh, mother and his stepfather. Yeah, and that, that's not how things work and describe the duty of school officials to report, so to countervene that. These things might have been fine if he had introduced evidence or during cross perhaps <coughs> drawn out these facts, but these were facts that were not part of the record, they were not evidence, and um, as a result it was misconduct to, to interject these in the record. Um, there, there's one other case I'll mention uh, briefly where the prosecutor discussed how he was proud to be an attorney. He told the story about how his um, grandfather had brought him to court many, many years ago. And then he also made reference to the fact that he had tried all these cases as both a defense attorney and a prosecutor. Uh, and he had been all around the, the, the country. Again, this was uh, inappropriate uh, personal experience. And the reviewing court held that it was objectionable, it was not relevant, it was unnecessary, and intended to vouch for the prosecutor's credibility and thereby essentially the credibility of the prosecutor's case. Again, I find defense attorneys also will do this, um, talk about their military service or talk about the fact they were prosecutors uh, in earlier incarnations, even during jury selection. You'll want to uh, address that and, and uh, explain why that's inappropriate. Now. Talking about evidence that doesn't, uh, that's not presented to the jury. Uh, 
Can a prosecutor comment on the demeanor, the courtroom of the de demeanor of a defendant who never takes a stand? As a general rule, no. Uh, and there, there are three grounds that have been referred to. Uh, demeanor evidence is relevant only as affairs on the credibility of witnesses, typically, and where a defendant doesn't testify, his credibility is not an issue. So that would be one reason why it would be inappropriate. Also, courts have found that prosecutorial comment infringes on the defendant's right not to testify when you talk about or allude to demeanor. And then the consideration of defendant's behavior sort of offstand um, also violates the rule of criminal conduct that you're not to infer criminal uh, intent from bad character. That's not something you're <coughs> permitted to do. So, no, you can't generally. However, um, it is a common argument by prosecutors and it's appropriate to ask the jury not to confuse the image of the defendant you see in court. You know, someone who appears here who's quiet, who's behaved, who's non-aggressive, um, with how the defendant must have appeared uh, or acted during the commission of a charged crime. Um, this, the courts have found, can be viewed no more uh, than the prosecutor following the law, essentially saying, hey, you can't um, pay attention to his courtroom demeanor. It's not relevant in the case. Um, in jury selection, I like to ask jurors, you know, as you you see the defendant there sitting there today, um, do you believe that, uh, have you formed any impressions already about the evidence in the case, or do you think he's entitled to any special consideration of leniency, just, just looking at the person? Sometimes you will get jurors who will say, yeah, I already, I don't think he could have done it, you know, some, or I know he's guilty, you know, something irrational like that, but you would not have unearthed that otherwise had you not posed that question. I think it's a really good idea. And it also uh, informs the jury, hey, you know what, this person, just because they're they're in a suit and they're well-groomed, I don't want to get confused with you know, how they might appear out there. So it's a subtle way to sort of remind the jury that courtroom appearance um, is not relevant in the case and may be very misleading. If a witness testifies, that's a different story. Can you say if a witness testifies? If a, if a witness testifies to the you know, this off-the-stand conduct on the part of the defendant. Let's say in a case, a witness is called to the stand at some point the defendant makes a threatening gesture in court, you know, runs a finger across the throat, something to that effect. That's a different story. There, that makes sense when you think about it too, because what the courts are concerned about is some behavior the jury may not have seen or the defense may not be in a position to cross-examine about. In that situation, um, that's something presumably some of the jurors would have seen, and you can comment on that. Um, well, yeah, you, uh, you have to do something to make sure that, the, that you ask the witness, okay, did you just see uh, the defendant make a threatening gesture? Could you explain it? Uh, you can't, unless you do that, you're not going to be able to comment on the offer of the So as long as you bring in the witness to talk about it, and, and let me just say too quickly, there may be situations too where let's say you're, the jury's out, there's some testimony being solicited outside the presence of the jury and something occurs in court, the defendant does something and there's a witness to that. Again, that might be a situation where you know, you'll present, you'll later ask the witness about that. You have some evidence 
that that occurred, that would be fine as long as you lay a foundation. So let's say the, the defendant does not testify. Can we argue a defendant has changed their physical appearance in order to raise doubts about the identity of the defendant? In other words, can we comment on the defendant's offstand appearance uh, for that purpose? Yes, um, but I think you need to proceed with extreme caution in doing so. There are going to be some cases where it's really obvious that that's that's what's going on. The defendant is, has radically changed his appearance, and perhaps to confuse witnesses. I've had cases where the defendants, uh, in this case, of things that don't go to trial for several years, and then uh, has actually made lots of changes just before court to, to alter his appearance, whether it's wearing glasses or you know shaving you know uh, their hair or whatever. Um, there's a case of People versus Cunningham where the prosecutor asked several witnesses uh, in that case how the defendant's appearance differed from, from when he had committed the murder. It was a murder case and the witnesses testified that the defendant's hair was shorter and more gray, that he had lost a lot of weight, as much as 30 or 40 pounds, and that his front tooth no longer had a gold cap on it. Um, at one point the prosecutor even had the defendant display his teeth to the jury. And by the way, don't hesitate, you know, in situations where it calls for it to have the defendant either stand up or utter a phrase that might be relevant in a case or um, put glasses on or wear a hat. Those are things that are, are appropriate in cases to do. Um, now, in this particular case, the prosecutor then argued that the defendant had deliberately changed his appearance for the purpose of raising doubts about his identity. The defense was allowed to counter, and they did. They suggested that you know, he, he, um, had, his teeth were, were rotten at some point, and that's why he had the gold tooth, um, and um, that uh, essentially he had, been, he had finally been able to have his hair cut, and that he lost weight because the jail food isn't great. So they, they countered. Was so was it okay for the prosecutor in that case to say that the, the defendant had deliberately altered his appearance in order to raise it out of Yes, because it was a reasonable inference uh, in that case. Um, and essentially, the California Supreme Court has said that as a general rule, a prosecutor is entitled to explain that a defense appearance may have changed between the time of the crime and the time of the trial, and account for why witnesses are describing him differently. And they're also allowed to argue that he deliberately altered his appearance to raise doubts or to confuse witnesses because it, it pertains to issues of identity and consciousness of guilt. So you want to, you know, make sure that's, that's, a, that's a reasonable argument to make, otherwise you lose credibility in front of the jury. Okay, we've been talking now about uh, how you can't talk about evidence that's outside the record. But does that also uh, prohibit a prosecutor from discussing, you know, matters of general knowledge to her? No, counsel during summation may always refer to matters that are not evidence, but as long as they're you know, common knowledge or there are illustrations that are drawn from, from experience or history or literature, those are you know, rich areas to draw from. I encourage you to do so. Um, you're given a wide latitude to, to do that, uh, the meaning of words, etc. There are exceptions, though, in this area as well. There's a, a case, People versus Zeranaga, uh, where Two defendants were charged with um, 
multiple counts related to a home invasion of 10 college students in that case. And in response, um, defense counsel had argued that the prosecutor, uh, well, the defense argued that it was unlikely that, that um, you know, the two defendants in this case would have been able to um, rob and imprison 10 different people. It just it was not credible. And in response, the prosecutor in that case had projected a chart that listed the airlines, the flight numbers, the time of departure, and the number of passengers and crew on each of the planes involved in the 9-11 tragedy on September 11, 2001. They did that to highlight the disparity between the large number of crew and passengers, obviously, in relation to the number of hijackers. That case, the defense attorneys immediately objected to the argument and found it was an improper analogy, argued that they were prosecuted was clearly appealing to the prejudices uh, of the jury, um, and, you know, by juxtaposing these two different fact patterns. Um, and, you know, people said, well, wait, no, we're just, this is a matter of common knowledge. It's within permissible range of argument. Um, it's directly responsive. In that case, the California Appellate Court um, found that although the 9-11 incident is clearly a matter of common knowledge, um, that the specific information that the prosecutor presented, you know, all that detail that they projected uh, on, you know, in PowerPoint or on charts um, was not, that, that sort of detail was not well known. Um, and they found that the prosecutor's inflammatory comments regarding 9-11 crossed the line. Um, it probably would have been okay if they just, you know, briefly referred to the 9-11 incident to, to show that just a, a, a small number of individuals can intimidate a much larger uh, group of individuals. But here, the case is a little bit of an outlier because it, in that situation, they were more concerned about the combination of going into the great detail plus the potential inflammatory aspects of it. So uh, it, it's yeah, a little I, bit of an outlier. It is, I agree. I think that had they just referred to it briefly, it would have made their point in any event. It would have been fine. In most cases, sort of the, the rule I think to go by is there's going to be no misconduct where the argument at its core is really just an appeal to common sense versus something, some matter that's that's outside the record or beyond common knowledge. I, Steve, can we quote from literary sources or other publications? Yes, uh, that is, there's no problem you're, you're, to do that if you're illustrating a point or highlighting an argument. I do it all the time. I, I like to use you know, famous quotes from history. I'll often interject a quote from Abraham Lincoln or Mark Twain or something. Time and again, there'll be some quotation that will really illustrate a point, and, and I think jurors enjoy that and appreciate that. So I, I wouldn't hesitate to do that. You can't, for, though, you know, read, you know, from some expert treatise because you, you know, you forgot to call that expert, or you wanted to make sort of a point that's sort of again outside common knowledge, and so you just start reading, you know, from something you want to sort of sneak into evidence. You can't do that. You know, sometimes uh, prosecutors will try and refer back to something the jurors said during the dire, or uh, they want to quote from something the juror gave in response during the or during the argument. Is it ever okay to speak directly to an individual juror as opposed to the jury as a collector? 
No. During the closing argument, absolutely not. You, you, cannot, you cannot do that. Um, again, it's referring to a sort of matter outside the record or outside the evidence, I should say, in the case. Uh, you have to address the jury as a body. Um, and uh, you can't talk to individual jurors during closing argument. <coughs> um, use their names, that sort of thing. That's been condemned by the courts. Steve, are we going to run into misconduct uh, issues if we uh, misstate facts or imply that facts known to us which are true or not true or, or vice versa? We cannot do that. Uh, that, again, should be, should be obvious. We're held to a higher standard. And, and you lose credibility in any event. When you refer to things that, that you were known are not true, you're, you're not 12 people that are absorbing this evidence. Somebody's going to know that this just doesn't fit. So you're going to lose credibility. It doesn't, it undermines your very goal to begin with. So you don't want to do that. Um, there is one example from the case materials where the prosecutor had implied that if one of the jurors was a holdout, then essentially the defendant would go free. He would simply walk, the defendant was incarcerated in this case. And then we'd walk right out of the courtroom if during deliberation one of the jurors was a holdout. And that actually isn't true. That was a misstatement of the law. And the district attorney certainly had to know that. So um, you, you can't do that. That's the, in that case, you might also have to call that a misstatement of the law, not just a misstatement or, or uh, suggesting that no fact is not true. So you don't want to do that. Um, you don't, though, um, misstate facts by drawing inferences from the evidence. So, you know, I want to caution you there that you are allowed, you're given wide latitude to do that. Any reasonable inferences and deductions that a case may provide, you're, you're going to be allowed to argue that we all know when you're misstating the evidence. Steve, you know, there's a lot of cases out there saying that you cannot ask the jurors to speculate. So, can you tell us uh, how to distinguish between asking the jurors to speculate and asking the jurors to draw a reasonable inference? I will try. I mean, it's, it's a, a, granted a, a thin line sometimes. Uh, that, that is the line between reasonable uh, inferences and speculation. But I'll do this by, by talking about a couple of the cases uh, where reasonable inference was, was allowed or, or noted. Um, the prosecutor had a, a case involving a sexual assault where he argued that the victim only submitted to the defendant's sexual assault because by doing so, she had hoped that she wouldn't be killed uh, in that case. And you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, direct evidence of that. Um, in this case, where the victim was dead. Yeah, the victim was, was killed. And um, the court found that there was a reasonable inference to make in that case that, that the victim would have willingly submitted to the sexual assault before she was murdered because uh, there was no evidence in that case uh, of a struggle in the victim's bedroom. The defendant himself acknowledged that the two had had sex. There was testimony from the pathologist that there was no traumatic injury. So these were all things, of course, the defense was using to suggest that this was a consensual encounter. The prosecutor uh, was able to contravene that argument by suggesting, no, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily follow. It also was reasonable to believe she submitted because she felt she had no other choice at that point, was hoping he would spare her life. So that, that was a case 
where it was a reasonable inference. Cases where speculation um, has been um, has occurred and, and where the prosecutor was admonished, uh, court condemned the prosecutor for describing the defendant as a killing machine. In a case where there was no evidence that the defendant killed anyone else. Um, you know, the, the prosecutor said something about how many others are there out there? You know, and that may, may have been the case, but there was no evidence of that. You can't do that. That's just, uh, it was, was a leap that uh, was not a reasonable inference by any means. Uh, there was another case where the prosecutor saw the defense witness and the um, relative of the defendant, they were together um, in, in the hallway. Um, and just before, they were, they were sort of commingling just before the trial and they got on the stand and the prosecutor said, oh, you know, clearly they were conspiring to lie. Again, there just was no evidence to do that. So you have to, you know, be careful, you know, when you, when you talk about sort of what uh, what's reasonable and what may be speculation. Is there some way to reconcile these two basic principles? Yeah, I think that as long as someone can find, you know, you, as long as someone can find the inference to be drawn uh, by the prosecutor is reasonable, it's, it's not improper. Um, you know, even though some others might find it, it doesn't follow, it's a non sequitur, it's illogical, it's faulty reasoning, provided that someone can find that this is a reasonable argument to be fine. Can a prosecutor ever make reference to the motion and limiting rulings or uh, that the defendant, for example, was held to answer that in their examination? No, this is a matter clearly outside the record. There was a case where the prosecutor argued twice that the statements that, that were introduced in the case um, were, were introduced or allowed by the court. Uh, the court had ruled on it and the, and the statements came in. And so you're referring to a matter outside the record. In that case, you're almost using the judge then to vouch for, for um, Legitimacy of the statement. Right. This sometimes comes up where people ask, hey, can I, uh, the defendant is challenging the voluntariness of the statement in front of the jury. And the, the, the trial judge has already ruled that it comes in. Shouldn't I be allowed to come to, to point out that it has been deemed legally voluntary? But uh, you cannot uh, do that. That's it's a separate issue. And, and you certainly wouldn't want the defense doing that either to sort of suggest, hey, the judge said this is okay. You know, they're, they're sort of vouching um, and, and using the, the court to sort of you know, support their position. Can we ever make reference to appellate court decisions in closing argument? Like to say, hey, on very similar facts, the Court of Appeal upheld the conviction uh, based on very similar evidence to the kind of evidence we have in this case. No, this is uh, clearly <laughs> evidence that's outside the record, certainly you can ask the trial court uh, to instruct on principles of law that may be discussed in, in a case that, that's relevant um, and to argue that law in, in closing, but to turn around then and cite those cases and say the Cal Supreme, California Supreme Court wants to declare and use that, that that's not appropriate because again, if you, that, you're there and you might be suggesting that the court itself has, has found this defendant guilty. Um, it's you know it's subtle, but it's that's clearly you know could be the import of what happened. So you can't do that. Um, what about uh, 
just using the argument uh, or analysis from the Court of Appeal without ever referencing the Court of Appeal opinion. Is that okay? That's, a, that's appropriate. And in fact, you're going to find often you know, <coughs> wonderful articulations of certain points you want to make in these, in these appellate reviews. It certainly can go in and, and, and use those to make your point. You just can't, you know, there's no attribution in that situation um, that you should engage in uh, because it's a form of action. Do we have to be right about the law when we're doing our closing <laughs> We do. Um, we do. You know, we were given broad discretion in discussing, you know, uh, legal and factual merits of a case. No, no question about it. But it's improper in the state of law, and that that's one of the first uh, and quickest roads to reversal. It is by doing that. And again, you want to make sure that defense counsel doesn't misstate the law. They have, you know, clearly a different agenda, but it's. Uh, you know, you have to be sort of careful. You can't ask jurors, for example, to view their own personal beliefs as that of a reasonable person. That would be, that would be an example. So you, you do have to be right about the law. Um, do we have to be especially careful when we're discussing the law? Because a lot of times when you're discussing, uh, in closing argument, the, the law, you may not be tracking exactly what is in the statute or in the telegram, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always error to depart in any way from uh, the telegram instructions, but there are certain principles of law where we might have to be especially careful, and uh, one of those is the presumption of innocence. Uh, Steve, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, uh, this is a potential minefield, and you really need to understand you know, the laws that surround presumption of innocence and reasonable doubt in the, in the courts of these who have reviewed um, applications by either the prosecution or, or the defense. But um, it's just a, a really good area to be familiar with, to know inside and out. Um, there, to, to use a couple of examples that were, were deemed misconduct or inappropriate, uh, prosecutor argued that, that there has to be some evidence on which to base a doubt, to base a reasonable That was, that was inappropriate because it was, the court found it was reasonably likely the remark was, could be understood by the jury to mean that the defendant had the burden of producing evidence uh, to demonstrate that reasonable doubt existed. Um, the court also held it was misconduct in, in a case where the prosecutor uh, essentially said, you know what, uh, you're going to go now to the jury room, and when you're back in, in the jury room, um, the presumption of innocence is going to vanish uh, when you start deliberating, and that's when the presumption of guilt is going to take over. You know, here, that had that been tweaked or changed in a different way, it might have been fine, but there, again, the inference could be that, you know, presumption of innocence is gone. It doesn't apply anymore when you deliberate. It still applies. Um, there, other ways to argue that, we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah, you can say uh, that the evidence has overcome the presumption of innocence. But don't say that the presumption of innocence has disappeared. I mean, the presumption of innocence continues to exist until the jury has uh, been convinced beyond a reasonable doubt and come to that determination. 
these are subtle things, but they're critical. They can make all the difference, because you know, now that they're on that record in print and the court's reviewing them, um, you know, the court's going to kind of analyze that in detail. So you want to be really careful how you describe and talk about reasonable doubt. Um, and in talking about reasonable doubt, something that, uh, th there would be a different answer to the, to the question I'm going to ask now when it comes to arguing reasonable doubt. It's a very common uh, circumstance for the prosecutors would try to illustrate reasonable doubt by putting up a diagram that had a photograph of a very uh, well-known object or person and then say, okay, well, we're going to show you that even though some aspects of this photograph or diagram have been covered and not complete, that doesn't mean that you have any doubt as to whether or not this is a photo of someone who's very well known or an object that's very well known. Uh, is that a, a legitimate argument these days? No. You know, when you're talking about reasonable doubt, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, it, it can be a risky proposition, I mean, especially when graphs or charts or PowerPoint presentations are involved. Those, when you try to do that, um, it can easily backfire or come back to haunt you. But essentially, the guiding principle here is never attempt to quantify reasonable doubt. Defense counsel may do that. You may object to it. Recently, I had a case where they used a, a chart that's often used as temperature chart where they put reasonable doubt at the top and all these other standards are proved below that and clearly implying to the jury that it's going to take, you know, um, you know, a lot of evidence to get over this sort of threshold. Um, they're they're going to do that. We, for us to do something like that, it, it sort of speaks of quantification and, and jurors really, I mean, our courts are, are um, very much against that, condemn that. Um, this case, there's a case, People versus Katz, Katzenberger, and then also you might want to refer to a Centennial in your materials recent case where the prosecutor used a PowerPoint in which he had six of the eight puzzles or he had six of uh, eight puzzle pieces uh, where he added them one by one and essentially um, it, it was clear it was a statue of liberty he didn't insert the face or, or the torch uh, but uh, in that case you know he was sort of conveying that hey we all know that's the statue of liberty beyond a reasonable doubt even though a couple of pieces are missing um, and the prosecutor went on to argue that, um, you know, essentially that this is this is permissible. I, I'm simply suggesting that there can sometimes you may not get all the evidence, and it's still the evidence is still compelling. But the way that it was presented was deemed inappropriate. It was misconduct because the use of, of an icon could suggest to the jury, you know, this very recognizable icon, the Statue of Liberty, that it was proper to leak to the conclusion that a far smaller quantum of proof uh, was, you know, would satisfy the standard of reasonable doubt. Um, and six of eight pieces, essentially, it's 75%, if you want to really do the math in that case. Is the prosecutor suggesting to the jury, hey, all you need is 75%? Can't do that. Um, doesn't, as, as Jeff was suggesting, though, it doesn't prevent you from sort of arguing that perhaps guilt uh, like a jigsaw puzzle may be obvious even if there are some pieces missing. It, as long as um, this metaphoric, it's a metaphorical argument and you're not getting into percentages, 
um, or quantifying it in, in the remote sense. Um, you're just simply trying to suggest to the jury that um, you can satisfy reasonable doubt even if there are some pieces of the puzzle you don't have. That's fine. Just stay away from the number of pieces or, or how many are, are, are missing. Um, Steve, what about equating reasonable doubt to uh, other kinds of decision-making processes? Is, is that okay? Uh, it can be, although, again, I'm going to qualify that because there, there's a case, uh, again, in the materials where the prosecutor asserted that reasonable doubt was like making a decision uh, as to marriage or uh, putting, when you put your life at stake, when you, you, know, you change lanes, equated uh, reasonable doubt with those kinds of decisions. And there, the, the appellate court criticized this definition on the grounds that you know, when you change lanes, often that's that's reflexive. Um, it, it's not, you know, something that should be equated with reasonable doubt. And then they also pointed out that the decision to marry, you know, it turns out is wrong 33 to 60 percent of the time or something. So that you know what, this is just not good to sort of uh, uh, compare reasonable doubt to these sorts of things. Uh, they're they're poor analogies. Um, and don't do justice to reasonable doubt, which requires <coughs> certainty. Yeah, I mean, it's always uh, a dicey proposition for prosecutors to start even talking about reasonable doubt. You know, there's, uh, there's old saying that whenever you fight a battle, you want to fight on the ground that's most advantageous to you. Talking about reasonable doubt, that is not a ground that is advantageous to the prosecution. A lot of prosecutors, they don't touch it at all. They just talk about, hey, we're here to find out what the truth is, and let the defense try and say, well, we don't really care that much about the truth. We care whether it's removed uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just not an area that we necessarily benefit by uh, discussing in great detail. But if you are going to talk about it, then uh, talk about it in a way where you can convey that it is a, a decision that people make all the time. You can certainly say, look, across the United States, you know, a, a million people are being evaluated under the reasonable doubt standard, uh, hundreds of thousands every day. And it is a standard that is geared for uh, human analysis. That's okay, but stay away from getting into any of this kind of quantification. Yeah, let me, let me say this to the... I, I, I'm gonna... Just want to point out that we're starting to run a little bit uh, out of time, so I want to stop you. Sure. Um, but I think it is a good idea to always talk about reasonable doubt, but make sure you have it's planned out what you're going to say, how you're going to talk about it. You don't want to wing it. You don't want to do any sort of improv. You want to know what you're going to say. And I tend to say the same thing about reasonable doubt each time. I think it is an important concept to address, particularly in rebuttal. If evidence is introduced for one purpose, a trial. Can we uh, use it for multiple purposes in closing argument? No. Um, you cannot, you, you can't do that. You can't urge uh, use of evidence that's been admitted for a purpose for all purposes. But sometimes it's not clear whether or not evidence has been admitted for just a single purpose or multiple purposes. What do we do in that situation? You'd want to talk to the court, as you, as you would in any case where you have some questions about how far you're going to be allowed to talk about evidence. All right, uh, let's move on to 
slurs, defamation, and things along those lines. How derogatory can a prosecutor get in referring to a defendant? Very derogatory. Uh, <laughs> you know, again, provided that it doesn't, it's not designed principally to inflame the passions or prejudices of the jury. Uh, if, it's, if it's reasonably warranted by the evidence, as I alluded to earlier, even an opening statement, you can do that. It, it's fair game. Um, you you should refrain, one word of caution, you should refrain from referring to the defendants, uh, uh, comparing the defendant to a historic villain or a, a fictional uh, villain, uh, especially when it's, it's entirely inappropriate to do so. You're going to lose credibility in any event with the jury, but you can. You know, there really are no um, uh, limitations as to what you can refer to the defendant as, you know, a despicable excuse for a man, uh, a rat, uh, uh, someone who didn't who conducted himself like an animal, um, who was resigned from the human race. These are all things that have been upheld, deemed reasonably warranted from the evidence. You just have to tie it to the evidence. If, if, if there's got to be some connection to the evidence, but you do have a lot of uh, leeway when it comes to describing uh, an individual in less than five terms. But can you call a, a defendant a liar or say that they concocted a defense? Yes, you can, and, and I think you, sh you should do that uh, when evidence calls for it. Um, you can, as long as it's a reasonable inference based on the evidence. For example, the defendant's testimony is inconsistent with that of the witnesses that you've presented. Uh, clearly, you can refer to the defendant as a liar or suggest that the defense is fabricated also. You can, uh, if, if uh, it's a reasonable inference. And time and again, that will be just what you're going to be arguing in response to defense suggestions, that your witnesses are lying or have some agenda. Uh, so it's entirely appropriate to do that. Um, can you argue the fact that a defendant even hired an attorney is evidence that they can conducted a defense or shows consciousness of guilt? No, you want to stay away from that altogether. It's, uh, it, that is going to certainly uh, anger the court and it's inappropriate, it's misconduct. Aside from the defendant, uh, can a prosecutor impugn uh, the credibility of a defense witness? Yes, uh, hard, uh, harsh, scathing attacks uh, on the credibility of opposing witnesses are always going to be permissible. Again, I believe a necessity in many cases. You need to confront that defense head on and explain why uh, the defense witness either may be mistaken is lying um, or has some agenda. And uh, there's, again, wide latitude um, in terms of what you can say. Um, many cases where prosecutors have referred to defense experts um, pointing out sarcastically, for example, that an expert in brilliance um, is not appreciated by society, but by the defense attorneys who pay him. Um, that the witness's testimony is unbelievable, unsound, or even a patent lie, or that this witness was a perjurer or not following the script, um, that this this defense expert was like a, a kind of Walmart for defense attorneys and characterized the defense expert as sort of one-stop 
shopping to put reasonable doubt in your minds. Those are things that are all fair and again, I think are appropriate in cases where there are reasonable inferences from the evidence. Yeah, there's even one case where it was a, a contract killing and the prosecutor repeatedly uh, pointed out that the fees paid to the defense expert were a lot more than the defendants received for killing the victim. Can a prosecutor comment on the fact a defense alibi witness failed to come forward Yes. Again, it's, it's permissible for a prosecutor to, to do that, that, you know, naturally in the evidence you can suggest that a witness question of a defense witnesses motives when they, they don't they fail to report this or they don't tell anybody about this and that'll be the case often you'll there'll be this sort of eleventh hour defense. Some witness comes up, comes in and talks, you know, uses this alibi and both do that in cross examination, ask that witness and then comment on it um, in, a, in a case. And the only exception might be is if that witness was an accomplice of the defendant or something. So it might be some Fifth Amendment issues situation like that, otherwise you can't. Right, if you know that there's a reason that they couldn't come forward, you can't argue that they didn't come forward for some other reason, which ties back to something we were talking about before, is you can't mislead the jury either expressly or indirectly about what the facts are, when uh, you know them to be, to be different. Uh, we've been talking about attacking witnesses, attacking defendants. What about defense counsel? Can prosecutors attack the integrity of defense counsel or imply or state that defense counsel has fabricated defense? In general, no. And I really would stay away from, from ever doing that. Um, you commit misconduct if you attack the integrity of defense counsel or you cast aspersions on defense counsel. And it, it, demeans, it demeans you and it demeans the office as well, I think, when you do that. Um, you shouldn't be casting the defense counsel as a villain in a case. Um, and it's generally improper to suggest the defense counsel is fabricating the defense to imply, you know, essentially that counsel is free to deceive the jury. Put it on the defendant, not the defense attorney. You know, suggest, you know, he's doing the best job he can, but, you know, his client is guilty of sin. That's what it is. But to go after the defense attorney uh, just sort of denigrates the whole process. It, it, and courts have found, you know, it directs the jurors' attention to matters they, that are irrelevant. Um, it's not to comment on the evidence or argument or reasonable inferences to be drawn from. And it can be seriously prejudicial uh, in a case. So you, you want to stay away from doing that. What, what about if, there's, if there is actual evidence presented that the defense counsel has been fabricating the evidence? Can we comment on it in that circumstance? Yes. But again, I think it's better to, to sort of attribute it to the defendant. In other words, this is a fabrication. Clearly, what's going on here, uh, we have evidence of this, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that's how desperate they are to avoid guilt, etc. But to, again, to make it personal to the defense attorney, I, I, would, I would shy away from that. You can make the same point by just but sort of blaming the defendant for it. Because think about this too. Sometimes, you know, jurors, some jurors, may really uh, appreciate or identify with what the defense is doing. And, um, you know, so your job is sort of bring them back and explain why this is a fabrication. If you attack that defense attorney personally, that these jurors may be raised up. They may like this defense attorney. So I like to sort of be able to convey to the jury, hey, you may like defense counsel. Um, that's fine. But his client is still guilty, and here's why. If you are going to claim a defense counsel has fabricated 
make sure that there is concrete evidence there that that's what actually occurred. So there's no question uh, later on when the fact that they first What about attacking not the defense counsel individually, but sort of the generic role of defense attorneys? No, I, it's also improper to attack the role of defense attorneys as a class. And kind of the same rationale, um, you know, you, uh, there was a prosecutor who said sort of, you know, you're an attorney, it's your duty to lie, conceal, and distort everything and slander. In that case, the prosecutor didn't even bother to separate himself from that suggestion. Um, like somehow that was okay. No, you can't, you can't do that. Um, and, you know, you can't, it's not also accurate to say that it's, it's the duty of defense counsel in general to act in some underhanded and unethical way. Absent specific evidence in the record there, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go there. Um, you can say that, it, it, can't you talk about just the general duties of, def, of defense counsel? Um, you, well here it's where I, I think to sort of say this is what all defense attorneys do, I mean that's, again you're sort of, you know, getting, getting close to making a you know, personal attack on defense attorneys as a class. You can't comment about though that it's the job of defense counsel to confuse the issues in contrast to the prosecutor's duty to review that confusion. That's not going to be deemed misconduct where it's understood that you're simply trying to explain to the jury, hey, don't be misled by the defense interpretation of the evidence. Uh, but again, don't make it a personal attack on the defense attorney. Yes, absolutely, you should attack um, the defense position uh, and suggest you know, what they're, they're attempting to do is is, is confuse you, but I would not, I, I, I would just stay away from attacking them as a class. Does, does that mean then, because we, we should not be attacking the integrity of defense attorneys, that we can't challenge shaky legal tactics or dubious arguments or mischaracterization of facts by the defense attorney? No, so let me, let me be clear here. Not only is that permissible, I think it's often crucial you have to do that. I think you have to sort of step up to the plate and respond uh, in kind and, and call the defense on attempts to distort um, the, the law or the facts. Um, you know, the case law does say we have wide latitude in describing deficiencies in opposing counsel's tactics and their factual account. Um, and there, have been, there are a lot of cases that, that uh, speak to this in the materials about how far you can go in doing that. And um, so, though uh, it's a little bit subtle, it's clearly, you know, you can go after the, their tactics, their ridiculous arguments, their mischaracterization of the facts. There's nothing proper, improper about doing that. So I know we have a lot of information about this uh, that we were planning to talk about. We have about 10 minutes left. So I'm just gonna hit some of the highlights sure. when it comes to the kinds of arguments that you, you can make. Uh, you know, there's the old uh, defense counsels like an octopus or squid throwing out ink. Is that, that, that's okay? That's, yes, that's perfectly fine. That's an, that's an example. There's another one that I like to use a lot, and, you know, de defense counsel. You know, I was you know, back in law school, and I was told when the facts are against you, argue the law, when the law is against you, argue the facts. When the facts and the law are against you, bang the tape, create a distraction. Again, that's perfectly appropriate and though a lot of us are familiar with that argument, the jurors often are not 
and they, it really illustrates the point. What about uh, the old, hey, defense counsels throwing sand in your eyes, throwing up uh, red herrings? Yes, entirely appropriate uh, stock sort of responses um, that, that are entirely appropriate in the case and uh, necessary, I think, in some cases, to, so to, to let the jurors know, hey, you know what, uh, defense counsel's doing a marvelous job of trying to confuse you or distract you. But the reality, let's get back to the reality. I'm going to share with you what the facts are, and here they are, and here's why that's you know a big red herring. So we can attack shaky legal tactics, uh, but what about attacking you know permissible defense uh, tactics? Can we do that? No. If you sort of know that whatever the defense counsel, whatever argument they may be making, is is appropriate, uh, maybe even off record outside the presence of the jury, it's clear that the defense attorney is, is, is going to be making certain arguments and they're entirely appropriate to then suggest that defense counsel is bringing things before you that you shouldn't be hearing, that they're cheating it in a way. That's, that is duplicitous on our part. You can't do that. You have to sort of, you know, make sure you act with integrity always, not exploit a situation where you might suggest to the jury that the prosecutor but the defense attorney is doing something wrong when the reality is that uh, it's entirely appropriate what they're doing. In fact, they're doing their job. Can we uh, preemptively attack anticipated flaws in what we anticipate will be a defense counsel's argument for, or, or attack ways the defense counsel is going to be doing things? Uh, for example, uh, could I say knowing that a defense attorney is someone who is likely to cry? Can I alert the jury to that fact uh, during my opening argument? No, I, I think that, that that arguably is misconduct to, to do that. There are, you know, in, in obvious cases where where there, you expect the defense to do certain things, you can, you know, launch some preemptive strikes. It's not altogether uh, forbidden or verboten, but as a general rule, to, to sort of do something like that could be considered misconduct, could sort of be uh, considered um, unprofessional. So you want to be, you want to be careful not to do that. You can certainly come back later and comment on that. Uh, but uh, to do that at the outset, you know, to attack the integrity of the defense counsel by suggesting they're a dishonest charlatan, you know, that they're trying to deceive you from the outset. That, that can be going over board. Okay, I'm going to go more to like yes or no types of okay. questions now uh, in light of our time constraints. Uh, can a prosecutor comment on the fact that there were discrepancies between defense counsel's opening statement and defendant's testimony? Yes, uh, absolutely. They'll do the same to us, so be careful with the same opening statement. Can a prosecutor claim defense counsel does not believe their own case? No, that you cannot do. That's even if you know that's the case, uh, that uh, that would not be appropriate. It's very prejudicial, obviously, in front of the jury. Let's say you have a pro per. Uh, can we discuss the fact that the jury should not be influenced by the fact the defendant is representing himself? Yes, that's uh, the jurors are allowed to know that it's the right of the defendant to represent himself, and that's you know, it's a sacred right but that doesn't entitle that 
that person who represents himself to any special consideration. I'm just trying to case involved in Polkirk where we covered a lot of that even in jury selection. This isn't so much of a, a, of a yes or no type answer, but when will the defense open the door to otherwise improper prosecutorial argument? They, they really can't in the sense that, that um, you know, you don't want to set up an eye for an eye sort of situation. The defense counsel does something that's inappropriate. You know, really your job is to object to that, to try to, you know, uh, head that off at the outset. But to sort of say, oh, well, that opens the door for me to say this or that. Generally, no. Now there are times where in rebuttal you're given some latitude to the prosecution, for example, where the defense has suggested, hey, my client didn't have uh, a right to testify. You know, if you were to do something that, as a defense attorney, that egregious um, to, to distort the law in that way, you might be allowed to say, wait a minute, no, he had that right. Um, but to then, you know, to keep going, no. So generally, I would say that, uh, again, take the high road. Yeah, there is a caveat to that, to that exception. We do get more leeway in rebuttal to respond to inappropriate uh, defense arguments. But even in that circumstance, we can never respond by introducing evidence outside the record. Um, can we ever make appeals to sympathy for the victim in uh, the guilt phase of the trial? As a general rule, no. Uh, you know, unless it's a sort of element of, of the crime, there are some exceptions. But no, you can't uh, suggest to the jury that they step into the shoes of the, the victim. There are a lot of cases that speak to that where, you know, the prosecutor does sort of a masterful job of providing, you know, this detail and putting, you know, the jurors in the victim's shoes and you can see where that could be very effective. It's not appropriate. It's not fair. It's prejudicial. You can't do that. You can't um, do that in most cases. In some sexual assault cases uh, or force and fear factors, that, that might be exception where you can, where it's naturally going to come out how the victim was feeling and explain perhaps why they consented or, or did certain things. And just by virtue of the way you ask the questions, it may well sort of put the jurors in the shoes of the victim. But, you know, to, to sort of openly advocate that do this, ladies and gentlemen, you can't do it. Right. It's not misconduct to discuss the evidence in a manner that will induce sympathy for the You cannot make direct appeals. Uh, or ask the jurors to put themselves in the place of uh, the victim. And there are some exceptions to this rule, which we kind of cover in the um, Can we ever appeal to the, to the passions or prejudices of the jury? No. The, 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 that may end up happen by, by the way in which you present the argument that is argue with passion. Um, and the jury may you're not, you're not allowed to do that. Again, you, you know, as long as it's reasonably warranted by the evidence, free to make certain arguments, yes. Um, and you can argue a case vigorously, but you can't go about, you know, seeking to inflame the jury, get the jury, or to, you can't do it. All right, we're gonna go back to the yes or no questions when we got a couple of minutes. Uh, can you argue that the jurors must avoid retrial? In, in which context? Where? Can you say, hey, if you, 
if we, if not everyone here agrees, we're going to end up having to redo this case or a retrial. You can generally talk to the jurors and suggest that they have, um, they should deliberate, they have a duty to deliberate, but you can't um, comment on, you know, suggest that uh, it's, they, they have to, they have to reach a verdict if it would be inappropriate uh, if they didn't all agree or, you know, you can't, you can't overstep it. Um, can we ever appeal to public opinion? For example, uh, can we ever uh, ask the jurors to say to themselves, hey, try to imagine a conversation in which you try to justify a acquittal in this case. So put yourself in a position of talking to your neighbors or friends. Can, can you make this kind of point? No. Can we ask the jury to send a message to uphold community values or preserve public safety by coming back to the safety No. Could we ask them to send a message to the defendant that he has to take responsibility or she has to take responsibility for his or her conduct? Yes, that would be fine. Can we ever argue that uh, the defendant is not convicted that they will commit future crimes? No, to, to comment on future dangerousness is, is not appropriate. Right, this topic is a, is a little bit more involved, and it's probably going to be the last topic we're going to be talking about. Uh, are we engaging in improper burden shifting if we uh, comment upon the failure of the defense to call witnesses or to use evidence? No, uh, we certainly can comment on that if there's a reasonable inference from the evidence that actually the defense, you would expect the defense to call uh, certain people in a case. Um, you know, there's even a case where the prosecutor can come and go, when's the, the defense can present a witness that suggests the defendant wasn't indeed the killer. You, you can't do that. Um, you can't, though, suggest that it's the duty of defense counsel to present witnesses or it would be the duty of the defense counsel to sort of disprove reasonable doubt. That's, that's burden shifting. <coughs> that you have to stay away from. Right. This type of argument, sometimes you will see the defense counsel saying, hey, by uh, putting the burden on us or asking us to present evidence, that is a indirect comment on the fact that my defendant didn't testify. And that kind of merges over into Griffin error. We're not going to be talking about uh, Griffin error, we're going to run out of time before we, before we get to it. There is an inquisitive prosecutor's guide that covers uh, both Griffin error, which is common on the fact that the defendant didn't testify, as well as Doyle error, which is common on the fact that someone invoked their right to silence after they've been Mirandized. Uh, we cover that extensively, but the anytime we make an argument that the defendant didn't present evidence, uh, you're going to see both an argument that this is burden shifting as well as a comment on the defendant's Fifth Amendment privilege. Uh, it's not, it, we can comment on the fact that if it was reasonable for them to bring in evidence or witnesses and they don't do it, that, that is fair game. But it's always a good idea when it comes to the closing argument to preface it by saying, hey, we understand we have the burden of proving it beyond a reasonable doubt. So anything I'm saying to you now is not implying that the defendant had a duty to put on this evidence, but I want to point out that there is no evidence that was presented. Obviously, we can't make any reference to punishment. Uh, 
can't tell the jury. Well, I mean, could, could you tell the jury that they cannot consider punishment? Yes, you would be allowed to do that. If you get a ruling from a court about what can be said or not said in closing argument, uh, and it's clearly wrong, <coughs> legally erroneous, can you go ahead and uh, say what you believe is appropriate to say, notwithstanding the court's ruling? No. The court's made a ruling, uh, despite how wrong it might be, um, you cannot comment on that uh, in front of the jury. And again, that, that's a court's ruling. That, that could result in a mistrial or later for the person, so you don't want to do that. All right. So the last thing I'm going to ask about is uh, rebuttal argument. We are going to only spend a very short time on rebuttal argument. In contrast to uh, what some folks have done when it comes to rebuttal argument, which is give a very short opening argument and save everything for uh, rebuttal. Is that okay, Steve? No, and in common parlance, you have know, the idea of sandbagging where you, you save everything for the end. Um, generally, you can't do that. I mean, there are some extreme examples from the case law where the prosecutor got up and argued for two minutes and then came back and rebuttal for two hours. It, you know, those sorts of extremes are, are going to be frowned upon or may well be uh, misconduct. Having said that, though, you certainly can save some of your most powerful arguments for rebuttal. You know, you, you can um, pick and choose what, what, you know, when you're going to address certain aspects of the case. Um, but uh, for the most part, this is not going to be a problem um, unless you do something ridiculously disproportionate. And you do have to worry, of course, about a defense counsel saying, hey, I, I didn't cover that in my, in my closing argument. It's inappropriate to bring up something new. Rebuttal argument is just rebuttal. All right, so we're done with both our uh, opening argument and our rebuttal argument for purposes of this presentation. So, Thank you all very much for, for paying attention. If you've got questions for us, uh, feel free to ask. Uh, any questions, 